everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we talk the about... Invested Podcast, Dad. Learning, learning about... Well, I'm teaching. Danielle's learning. And I hate to say it, but I'm learning, too, when she hammers me about what I believe is the truth uh, about investing. And, um, you know, she gets that lawyer background going, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm defenseless against her relentless attacks. More like you are, you have like the answer to basically everything, actually. <laughs> well, I have, I've been doing this for 30 some years. And, and I got to tell you that I've looked at lots of different kinds of investing over the years and following Warren Buffett. I'll just say this, following what Warren Buffett does works, number one, no big surprise there. Okay. N- number two, almost no other professionals can do it because it requires the ability to stay in cash for longer periods of time than fund managers are allowed by their investors. Oh, because he has to be able to wait for a while for the right investments to come around. And we've talked about this before. That's hard to do when you have investors who are going like, all right, what's going on here? Come on now. What are you doing with my money? Let me know. What's going on? What did you do yesterday? Yeah, it's bad enough individual investors do that. But what's really hardcore is that big, successful fund managers have probably most of their money coming in from pension funds who are managed by one person who is really interested in making sure that he looks good to his clients, which might be the California Teachers Pension Fund, and they have $180 you know, billion. This guy doesn't want to lose that account, so he's going to shift his money quickly off of a fund manager who's not doing well or doing nothing to somebody that's more active and doing something good. So these guys only have, uh, you know, between a quarter and half a year to prove themselves. And, and they have to stay on top like that. They don't have. I mean, it's have... tough because they have, they have good intentions. And the problem is just that their incentives are not aligned with those of their actual investors. That's right. I mean, the investors want results. They shouldn't care how they get them. But once they start seeing an investment go down as it's, you know, day to day, as the market maybe is going down, they start to freak out. They start to get scared and they start to question what's been going on. Similarly, if somebody isn't doing, isn't, doesn't appear to be doing anything by not making active investments, it looks like they're just kind of sitting around. Of course, they probably are totally not just sitting around, but it looks like that. So I, I get where people are coming from, but, uh, but the incentives are off because the incentive is at the end of the day for everyone, let's make money. That's the point here. Yep. And there's really sort of two kinds of fund managers. There's those who believe modern portfolio theory, which we've told you guys is the idea that the price of everything in the market is also its value. And therefore, it's impossible to beat the stock market. All you really do uh, is put your money in for the long term, vastly diversify it, what Warren Buffett would call over diversify it. And, um, and in the long run, you'll probably make somewhere around 5% per year <clears throat> in the very long run. I mean, there can be 20 years That's- where you make nothing. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. You know, you just got to have a long, long time to wait out the big drops. And um, and but there's a there's a pretty high degree of certainty that as long as America is doing well, the stock market will do well. Then there's the second kind of fund manager who believes that you can beat the market and that Warren Buffett does beat the market and that people who invest like Warren Buffett beat the market. But he can't 
invest that way because mm -hmm. of what you just said. They, yeah. they just, it's just yeah, not patient money. And so what we're teaching in this podcast is how to be patient money. I mean, you, you are all patient money. Nobody has a gun at your head to go out and do wonderful things with your money. You have full control. You don't have to put it into anything. Thus, I like that. I like the term patient money. Patient money. It so makes you me have feel wise and sad. <laughs> I'm just being patient. I'm just patient money. Well, you have the ability to be patient, Danielle. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. And most importantly, you don't have to move your money out of cash until you have a real investment. And just let me ask you, what is a real investment? Let's just say. A real investment, according to the Bill Town rule number one style, and I actually agree with this, is an investment in which you have a strong degree of certainty that it will go the way you think it will go. And the only reason that you can have that certainty is by looking back at what's been happening with that investment and by having some sort of criteria, some sort of paradigm by which you're predicting the future of what's going to happen with that investment. There's no such thing as 100% certainty. But, uh, but I think a real investment is something in which you have a reasonably high degree of certainty. Okay, very good. And what is it that we're going to have a reasonably high degree of certainty about, which is what I want to talk about in this podcast. What is it that we're really trying to have a high degree of certainty about? Are you talking about price? Well, a high degree of certainty that the price and the value are different. Yeah. But <laughs> what else, what, what other, what's the major thing? about investing in a business that we need to have a pretty good, solid comfort level on? I have no idea what you're talking about because there are four things that we need to have a solid degree of comfort on. Okay. No. Oh, well, okay, that's true. What are those four things, by the way? So we need to be able to be capable of understanding the business. Yeah. Yes. We need to make sure that the business has some sort of moat, some sort of intrinsic competitive advantage against other businesses. Yeah. We need to make sure that its management has integrity. Yeah. And we need to know that its price is lower than its value. Yes. Those are absolutely right. Um, and none of them were what I was driving at. <laughs> well, good Lord. <laughs> It was such a good answer, though. It was dead on. The way I asked the question, it was the right answer. I'm not sure how to frame this question, but I'll tell you what the answer is. So, <laughs> we could have saved so much time. Just tell us what you want to tell us. Dad. Exactly. So the, the, the thing that is critical about a business, what you're trying to understand when you're looking at you know, am I capable of understanding this business? Does it have intrinsic characteristics that make it durable? Does the management team have integrity? You know, what's the value of the business? Those things revolve around one really important number. And what that's called free cash flow. We oh, are... I would have never guessed that in a million years. All right. Well, good. So we need to need to basically what we're doing in this education is we're trying to highlight the key things that you need to really have a grip about in order to be a good investor. And free cash flow for us in looking into businesses and trying to understand what they're worth 
is the key thing we're looking at. Free cash flow is what okay, contributes. Okay, so we've mentioned it. Let me just back up for a sure. second. We've mentioned, you have mentioned it a number of times as we've been discussing several different ways to value companies for right. a while now. And, um, and okay, so free cash flow is one number that we've used in these various methods of valuation. But right. we haven't really, and we've talked a bit about where you get it, but we haven't really delved into it. And, and the reason we sort of waited this long to kind of get down to this nitty gritty level of understanding um, and the reason I actually used, in terms of figuring out the, the payback time view of the value of a business, in my book, Payback Time, we actually had a question about this, um, about why I used earnings in Payback Time, uh, the book. And then when we talk about Payback Time here on the podcast, we're talking about free cash flow. Yeah, we had a couple of questions from eagle-eared and eagle-eyed listeners who um, who sent their question to questions at investedpodcast.com, which you guys should do if you have any questions or comments. Um, we're reading them, and we got a couple of these from people who had read your book called Payback Time and wrote in to say, hey, in Payback Time, the book, you described your formula for valuing a company according to the payback time differently than you just described on the podcast. So, you know, what's the deal? Um, so here's the deal. What's the deal, Dad? <laughs> well, the deal is that earnings per share is a generally accepted accounting principle number that every company has to produce for its shareholders as part of its filings with the Securities Exchange Commission every quarter. And okay. so I sort of took a shortcut in payback time um, at the urging of, of my fabulous editor uh, and publisher at Random House that, you know, let's stay with numbers that are easy for people to get their hands on. And so oh, because earnings per share, that's the number that you used in the book, earnings per share. Right. That's what I used in the book. That's a number that's on financial statements that you can just. It's on every financial statement yeah. and it's published everywhere from every website. Everybody's looking at earnings per share. But the pro and I didn't really go into this in the book because I didn't want to over complicate things. But the problem with it is that you can't spend earnings per share. They're not real money. It's a fiction of what's called accrual accounting that we've talked about a little bit a long time ago. But without getting into all that, let me just say that if you were um, a large corporation and you looked at your bank account, what's sitting in the bank does not match earnings per share. Okay. It's not now, what's in I the bank. Now, if I remember right, that's because in accrual accounting, they account for essentially revenue that has been promised but has not actually arrived in the bank account yet. Right. And there are lots of very good reasons for doing that. Sure. But doing it means that a lot of times it looks like companies have more money than they do. Sure. And or, or I shouldn't even say more money. They have different, they might have a different amount of money in the bank than they do um, under earnings. Sure. I mean, companies actually go into bankruptcy that have earnings per share. They just don't have any cash. You don't have any cash, you can't pay your bills. So, but isn't that what operating cash is? Operating cash is a really important component of free cash flow. It's okay. um, it's the the major number that we look at to determine free cash flow, but it isn't free cash flow by itself. So, yeah, on the and last time we talked a lot about 
where to get those free those numbers for free cash flow. We did. So we kind of I've already got gone through that, but just to refer you back, you can check that podcast and 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 to summarize right now, you look at the cash flow statement, look at the operating cash flow line, which is the top third. It's a bold line there. It says cash from operations or cash flow from operations, something like that. Look at that line and then subtract um, down about three or four lines later, there'll be a line that says purchase of property and equipment. Subtract that line from operating cash flow and you have a simple, pretty accurate way to get at what we call free cash flow. Yeah, and, and read the footnotes <laughs> because... If you guys didn't listen to last week's podcast, you should go back and listen to it because it was about how on accounting statements, sometimes there are things that are a little unusual. And the footnotes are where you find out if they're unusual and it can make a big difference in the calculation of this free cash flow number. For sure. And so we're being a little bit more complicated here in order to end up someplace a lot simpler. And that is we kind of want to buy companies the way we would buy a piece of real estate. We want to look at it and say... Um, what do I, what do I end up with at the end of the year here from my rental house that I bought? So I got this house and what I have, uh, to start with when I think about my accounting is I have the money coming in from rent. Okay. That's yeah. my revenue. Okay. All right. Okay. Now I subtract from that the money that I have, uh, to pay out for taxes um, on property taxes, the money I have to pay out for insurance on the property, um, the money I have to pay to maintain, uh, keep up the yard, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So I have to subtract all of those. Now, what's left would be called operating cash flow. Okay? Sure. Yeah, because that that's the be, money that you brought in. Yeah, it's the money I brought in, less the expenses of the property. Now, i got to subtract one more thing when I'm looking at an accounting statement that's done with GAAP accounting, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And that is I also have to subtract what I spent to fix things that are not just ordinary expenses, that they happen once in a while, like a crack in the foundation, um, you know, painting the house, uh, like I occasional do. expenses that aren't going to be regular. Right. They're not regular uh, annual expenses. They only happen once every five or six years, or if ever, right? And those are called capital expenditures, but a special kind. They're called maintenance capital expenditures. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. Now, I have to subtract those as well as anything else I'm doing to the house to kind of fix it all up, like to make it better, to increase the rents, all that kind of stuff, I'm going to also subtract that. So if I put in a couple of big elm trees, if I pave the driveway, if I convert the, the basement to a mother-in-law unit, then all of those things are also deducted from my revenue. And my sure. expenses, right? So my operating cash flow, which is after my expenses, minus these capital expenditures, mm -hmm. what I have left in my pocket is my free cash flow. Yes. Yes. Got it? <laughs> so, because what, about what we've discussed is that sort of the formula for free cash flow is 
cash from operations or operating cash, and then you subtract purchase of property and equipment. Right. And I think what you just said basically is that purchase of property and equipment includes those maintenance capital expenditures, mm -hmm. right? It includes expenditures we, for maintenance and expenditures for growth. We just want to make sure those are in there for this free cash flow right. number. So I've got, I've got my rental house. <clears throat> I get in $12,000 a year, $1,000 a month. I take out $1,000 a year for taxes, for property tax, another $1,000 a year for insurance. And then I typically might have a couple thousand dollars of maintenance and growth-related capital expenditures. I'm always doing something to fix it up. Yeah. A yeah, couple yeah. thousand bucks. And okay, um, so got the free cash flow. Yep. And that is, now I've got $4,000 of all that stuff. I've got eight out of 12,000. So I've got $8,000 of money in my pocket. And when we're looking at businesses to invest in, we call that money in my pocket, free cash flow. Yeah, that's cool. I now, like that. I like this the thing that is weird for people is that they go like, well, yeah, but I own the house and I have the 8,000. I don't own the whole business. I don't own all of Whole Foods. And so I don't have money in my pocket because they kept it. Right? Oh, you mean people sort of think like, wait a second, I didn't actually receive any of that money? Yeah, I didn't actually That's get it. Company. Yeah. Right. So it's really important for everybody to understand when we do this kind of investing, we act as if we own the whole company. Whether it's a private company or public company, whether it's an apartment building or a single family home, we act as if we own the whole company. So, I mean, we can buy real estate online through stocks. They're just real estate investment trusts. And we would own our share of a big, you know, 50 apartment houses or our share of 10 hospitals or our share of a bunch of agricultural land. So we can do that really easily. And we would then think, wow, I'm going to treat this exactly as if I owned just the one farm or just the one apartment complex. And I owned all so of it. You create that little fiction in your mind right. in order to make this a useful number. Right. In law, we call it a legal fiction. So this could be our investing fiction. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to use that from now on. So this is our investing fiction that yeah. we own the whole thing. Now, that actually works, honey, on another level, too. And that is when I think about, do I like the people who are running this business? Do I like what the business does to all of the stakeholders? Does it meet my values? Then I think about it a lot more seriously if I do this investing fiction thing we just talked about. I own the whole company. If I own the whole company, I think, would Danielle and Elena be proud of me to own this whole company? Or would they think something happened to their dad and I lost my mind and I'm suddenly owning businesses that violate all of the moral principles I've been teaching you guys for your whole lives? <laughs> Yeah, it it, uh, it makes it personalizes it. It makes you identify with the overall actions and ethos and uh, and stance in the world of that company instead of it, it. It makes it closer to you instead of instead of feeling that separation between like oh you know somebody else is doing that stuff. If you really adopt the fiction, it, it personalizes it. Okay, so what does ethos mean? <laughs> Well, I'm just using it in the sense of like, generally, what is the company about? Uh, what is their mission statement? You know, what's why does this company exist? I like that. Nice word, ethos. 
Well done. So the ethos of my company has to match my value set. Yeah, Bang. I think it. Okay. I think that that's. I think that that's a really important part of making investing interesting and and keeping commitment to it. I mean, I don't find it naturally interesting. All of this accounting we're talking about, <laughs> it's rough. So I got to find another way in. And for me, really identifying and personalizing those companies, which are just made up of people just like us. I mean, it's not that we, I think we think of them often as these giant monolith separate crazy things that we have nothing to do with. And it's just not true. It's people just like us and it's people who are trying to do a good job and it's people who are not trying to do a good job. And, you know, like, who knows? It's just a bunch of people. We're all doing our thing. And, and it's not difficult when you think about it from that perspective to personalize a company and really start to identify with, like, what would it be like if I, if I really were the sole owner, if I really ran this company? I love that because if anybody really has are. Well, there really are people out there who are really doing, trying to do a good job. And there are really people out there making $20 million a year who, whose motivation isn't, isn't to fix the world. It isn't to better the world. It isn't to have a great purpose. It's to make themselves a lot of money so they can get a bigger boat. Absolutely. And, and that there absolutely exists. I mean, as stunning both, as that is. Both exist and everybody in between. Yep. And what we're arguing, I think, strongly here, what I'm really excited about you doing, Danielle, is starting to vote your values. Because if all of us did that, just want you guys to understand what that would mean. If all of us did that, about 85% of the money in the stock market is our money. It's little guy money being completely managed by, by these, these one percenters who don't necessarily share our values. And so if you don't like the idea that there are CEOs out there who have gotten their salary up to 500 times more than their average employee. If you don't, if you don't think that's okay, you know, when, I mean, just 30 years ago, they were at 40 times, right? Which is high enough, but now they're at 500 times because they've been playing a game um, with the boards of directors who are, you know, who are also just people and some of whom are have high values and strong integrity, and some don't. And as a result, you end up with these really heinous behavior on the part of people who are supposed to be the leaders of our society and are acting like a bunch of robber barons, a bunch of pirates who have no moral responsibility to the rest of the world in any way, shape, or form. It's all about them. And the it's only so way I think we can get rid of these guys is to vote our own money, and that's why I'm doing all this. And the good news is, conversely, there are people who are out there trying to change the world, trying to do the right thing, trying to treat employees really well, trying to put out great products into the world for people to buy at good prices, who are taking, you know, either a reasonable salary or some are taking a dollar a year. Like, there are people out there who are running great companies, and those are the ones that we have the opportunities to, the opportunity to invest in. So yep. it's not all doom and gloom. Yep. I, and I tell you, it's just not that it's not as simple as just looking at how much somebody's making and determining they're a bad guy. You know, No, of course not. Of course not. I would never want to suggest that. I'm glad you said that. I mean, some people actually really do earn their 20 million, but I would Absolutely. say they're, the, they're, they're more unusual than those who got paid the 20 million. And then you do have guys like John Mackey. I think 
I don't know if it was last year, but I think within the last couple of years, John Mackey at Whole Foods, who founded it, works on it night and day. This guy paid himself $36,000, you know. Steve Jobs paid himself $1 with no stock options in Apple when he first came back to it. He was just doing it yeah, out I of mean, love. To be clear, these are people who have millions of dollars. They're not hurting for lack of, right, you know, a right. decent salary that year. Like, nobody go home and feel worried about Steve Jobs or about John Mackey. Steve like, died, though. I need you to know. I know. That. Oh, okay. I know. He, I am aware. Thank you. You're <laughs> I just didn't want anybody to be concerned for his family of what he left behind. But um, the point is, like, they have tons of money. It's not like these guys are these ultimate altruists who are like living in hovels in order to create the next big thing. But they did at one point, you know, at one point. They oh my gosh, really- they did. They did at one point. That is the most exactly. amazing part of this whole journey is, you know, I love the idea of you guys starting to learn what a great company looks like and how to understand if you know it well enough to, to buy into it, to own it. And, um, and, you know, when to buy into it, all of those things are super important. And then once you've learned this, you can start experimenting with a little bit of your capital on companies that are at an early stage. You know, something that's an early stage, uh, you know, Justin's peanut butter. You kind of can. You kind of can. I mean, there are, there are SEC rules about who can do that. And, uh, and so some people will be able to do that and others won't be able to. But, Which is um, something we need to change, I think, don't you? I mean, those rules are from the 1930s when Big Brother came out to be sure to protect all the little people from making a mistake with their money and has become a little bit overprotective now to where these early stage companies have a great deal of, of rules and regulations that actually, Danielle, you were make, you make a living you, you know, telling these companies what the rules and regulations are that they can do. Yeah, I mean, frankly, it doesn't take much legal work to do that. It's just a matter of following a few simple rules. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there is probably a better way we could handle that. But the way we've got is the way we've got. And yes, the laws started a long time ago, but they've been continually updated since then. Well, I think we're starting to see some updates in terms of crowdfunding um, that have really changed the game. The SEC has been forced into... Uh, recognition that an awful lot of people want to spend some money on things that are just, you know, a high fly risk and, you know, get out of my way, Mr. Federal Government, Big Brother, and let me do it. And that has started to happen now. Yeah. And the goal there is to provide enough information so that people don't make investments that they don't understand. And, And that's the point of these regulations. So I think no, I wish that was true. Honestly, I don't believe that. I think that the point of these regulations is to prevent is to determine that some people have the experience and the knowledge uh, in order to make an investment with uh, with full eyes open and that many people do not. And the SEC has determined another way of saying what I said, which is that (laughs) to make sure that they have the information in order to make an, an informed investment decision but what i was saying is that even if they decided that certain kinds of people are able to get that information and certain other kinds of people are not able to get that information no matter what their situation well i would say uh, everybody can get the information but the secs determined that some people can't understand it and that's where i was about to go which is that the internet now is democratizing investment so greatly that it's changing those uh, 
the paradigm for people who are investing in small companies. I mean, crowdfunding couldn't exist without the internet. There's just no way you could get enough information about whatever the possible like small investment would be. And so that's why now, thanks again to the information that's out there, that's available, that's, that's, that's source that has um, some, some, some reputational constraints around it, I think now we're going to start seeing more changes. I hope we do. I and think I, it would be a good thing. I, and I really hope what we're doing is we're contributing to that skill set for the small investor so that, for example, what we're talking about today a little bit is free cash flow so that you know that if you're looking at some crowdfunding offer or some young early stage startup or something that you're interested in investing in, you understand what to look for. You understand that the value of that business is directly related to the free cash flow. Um, Warren Buffett said this. He said that, you know, people want a formula, but it's not that easy. He said to to value something, you simply have to take its free cash flows from now until kingdom come and then discount them back to the present using an appropriate discount rate. He says you all cash is equal. You just need to evaluate the business's economic characteristics, meaning does it have a sort of a franchise that's going to be able to deliver this cash forever? Um, without yeah. being interfered how, with. How reliable is your projection of that cash flow? Right. And the problem with early stage companies is that it's often, and difficult isn't even the word, we'd have to almost say impossible, to know how long and how big this cash flow is going to be. And so people who jump into early stage companies are often just rolling the dice. And if you learn from us in this podcast, you'll learn not to do that, not to think you're investing when you're not investing at all, you're just speculating, you're rolling the dice, you're gambling like crazy. Um, investing is looking out and saying, look, I, I have a pretty good degree of certainty that this cash flow is going to be coming in. And now I can figure out what the value of the business is based on free cash flow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. As you know, I disagree that venture capitalists are entirely rolling the dice. Um, I think that they are using the information they have in a very specific way and are making investments that they think are not pure speculation. And the proof is in the pudding. There's reasons why some venture capitalists are enormously successful and others disappear after three years. So. Yeah, and I, and I would say that all you have to do to see that these guys know that they're actually rolling the dice is look at the kinds of returns that they demand from these companies in order to put their money in. So the VC so might be saying... That's a function of the market. I mean, it's just too difficult to know exactly what, even when you've made, this is why I'm, I'm, this is why I'm hedging my words. I'm not going to say that they're making investments. There's a high degree of certainty. They know exactly how it's going to go. No, the whole point of venture capital is that there are a lot of factors going into a startup company that you just can't predict. You just can't, there's no way. And so at the same time, I would never call it speculation. There's a very clear set of criteria that most of these venture capitalists have that gives them the reason to make the investments they do. And there are some that have excellent results year after year after year after year. You cannot call that luck. Year after year after year year after year after year after year after year. Right? <laughs> it's not luck. There it's you go. It's not luck. It's not luck any more than going down to the racetrack and betting on horses um, with a syndicate that's using, let's say, the Kelly formula to, to, to size its bets. <clears throat> when it has an edge, that syndicate can make money year after year after year after year. I, yeah, think, I don't have a problem 
that. But you wouldn't call that investing. No, but I wouldn't call it speculation either. Oh, I would call it gambling. No, I wouldn't. If they have a, a method of choosing their horses and they it works <laughs> over and over and over and over in different contexts and at different times, I would call that not gambling. Okay, then... I w okay, I, I, I guess I, I, I'll back up a little bit here because, you know, <clears throat> we're, we're in a game where you, you can't for sure nail down the probability of success to 100%. You don't know, <clears throat> you don't know what the certainty you would, let's say, on a crap table, what the odds are of a certain number coming up. You know with great certainty what the odds are on a crap table. You don't know that when you're doing venture capital and you don't know that when you're buying businesses. Um, but you can have a range of certainty around your result, right? You can have a range of I like that term. You can have a range of certainty. Yep. Yes. And so that range of certainty with venture capitalists is lower than it would be with the kind of stuff we invest in. I would say that's true. Okay, fair enough. So somewhere in there it shifts from investing. I like, I like the range of certainty. Yeah, because uh, it's hard to find. It's hard to find the right word for what's in the middle. But, I'm just but the, point, say, I, the point I think you care about is that you have a higher degree of certainty than a given venture capitalist. Maybe. Yep, a, a much higher degree of certainty. Um, approaching certain certainty. Like Warren okay. Buffett says... When all you, right, all <laughs> right. Let's back off from that one. When you buy, certainly some of the time, you're buying businesses that you know you're going to do well with. You, you, you know it because you understand the business and... You know, you, you know that they're going to plant cotton back in Georgia and you know that they're not going to have to pay two dollars and ten cents per pound for cotton. And therefore, this teacher company is going to get back to its normal numbers. I mean, you, you have a high, high degree of certainty on that compared to we're going to start a new T-shirt company and it's going to go into business with this new T-shirt. And you, we don't know. We don't know if the guys can build it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so last, last I think, thing. I think point made on the certainty discussion. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so last point, last, last thing then on this free cash flow notion is that, yes, you're right, those of you guys who wrote in that we did earnings and payback time, um, but the more – and earnings are okay. They're in the ballpark of accurate on the average company. But they require – for you to know that earnings and free cash flow are close enough to, to give you the same payback time number – you've got to go deeper and look at uh, at cash flow. And so we, we just want to just start there. Why, why do earnings if we already are deep enough into the weeds to say we got to go to free cash flow to get a good number here on how long it's going to take us to get our money back if we own the whole business. And for that reason, we just say, okay, let's use operating cash flow, subtract purchase of property and equipment, and we end up with free cash flow, and then use that number to calculate the payback time. And that's what we do. Okay, that makes sense to me. So essentially, you're just dialing in that number a little bit more than you did in the book. Right, right. With some companies, free cash flow is going to be half of their earnings. And therefore, your mm. payback time is twice as long as you thought it was. And for wow. other companies, it's going to be 150% of earnings. And your your payback time is going to be a, a third faster than you thought it was. So you you really want to know those numbers and you really want to understand the business well enough to know that it's got this moat that will protect those numbers. And then you can kind of get a projection over the next six or seven years that, hey, if I own this whole business and I took the free cash flow, I would have all my money back and I'd have no risk in this business at all. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Good. All right. Everybody who wrote in their questions, let us know if this did not answer your question. But it makes sense to me. I get it. Awesome. Well, in that case, let's uh, wrap it up. I guess it's time to go play. See ya. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.